pray. God, it was so good for my heart just to be here and be a part of the corporate worship experience. I believe that's true primarily because you created me, you created us to worship you. And there is a, there's just a connection to the very core of our being with that. There is an encouragement that comes in just being around just many others who just are unapologetically lifting up their praise to you. Thank you for the thank you for the freedom to do that, Lord. I don't want to take that for granted. Just thinking about that in the first service just places around the world many places around the world where this could not be done what we're doing here in public but we can do that freely openly passionately to you thank you thank you most of all Lord that you're here with us, that when we come in the name of your Son, when we gather here, that your presence is here. We've prayed for this service. We've prayed for your manifest presence to be here, your felt, sensed, realized presence, your exhibited excellence to be in this place today. Because what we are, Lord, is a needy people. We come in here Coming here, and though we may be polished on the outside, we can, and many of us are, broken on the inside. Coming in here, some with serious needs, some with significant questions, some, Lord, even in desperation. But because you're here, the answer to the questions and the power to mend and heal is here. Your power. So Lord, you know every heart. You know exactly what's going on in the deep recesses of each heart. The cries that are going up even to you right now, you hear each one of them, understand them fully, love completely, and have unlimited power to bring to bear upon those situations. And we ask that through the riches of Jesus Christ, you would do that. You would do that here, please. Thank you for your word. Oh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Week after week, Lord, I'm not talking about my words, my preparation. I'm talking about what 
how, how just you amaze me every week by the beauty and the wisdom and the, and the power and the relevancy of your word. Pray you do that today. God, get Brad Suter out of the way today and let your word be unleashed in this place through the power of your, your Holy Spirit, through the gift of preaching that you would, that you, Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, would take the word of God and unleash it into the hearts and minds of the people of God to make us more like the Son of God for the glory of God. Do that, I pray. Give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I have the privilege of Dedicating a child this morning, Garrett and Mary Slogenhoff, would you come and bring Gideon up here? This is a great opportunity for celebration here. We know in Scripture that parents would bring their little ones to Jesus Christ so that he could put his hands on them and pray over them, pray a prayer of blessing over them. And so that's what we're doing in Dedicating of a child. We are recognizing a, a few things. We're recognizing, first of all, that, that this child, little Gideon right here, is a gift from God. God is the one that shaped and formed him in the womb, gave them to these parents. So it's a, it's a celebration of what God has already done, and it's really a commitment of what the parents are going to do, and to a lesser extent, the church family is going to be a part of, and that is to train up the child and lead him to the Lord Jesus Christ to the best of our ability. Is it your heart to do that? Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Hey, look at those eyes. Wow. <laughs> what a good baby here. All babies are good babies, but <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so, Gideon, I just anoint you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Church, would you stand just in agreement here? Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, pray over this couple, I pray over this beautiful little boy, pray for your guidance, guidance for Garrett and for Mary to be the parents that they need to be, that they want to be. Help them, Lord, when... They need to know from their perfect Heavenly Father how to be the parent, how to have the wisdom, how to speak the right word, how to balance grace and truth. Pray for this little guy right here, little Gideon. I just know that there is just unlimited potential in him. That ultimately, Lord, you know the plans that you have for him, all of the plans that you have for him. All of his days by you are already numbered. But we're just aware, Lord, one of the reasons we're, we're praying over him, we're, we're aware that there's a real enemy and the real enemy has real plans. And so as we have just anointed Gideon, we put our hands on him and 
ask you ultimately, Spirit of the living God, to put your hands on him in protection, that you would, that you would not allow any of the weapons the enemy fashions against him to prevail, that he would have a foundation under him and a hedge around him and a shield over him, that you would draw his heart to you as he grows and matures under the tutelage of mom and dad. Pray that he would come to a personal conviction, Jesus, of who you are and what you've done. He'd give him the faith to believe unto salvation. And Lord, we want to do our part as a church family to walk alongside this couple as long as we have opportunity to do that and to really be Jesus to them, to be Jesus to this little boy. Pray that you would help us in that. Commit it all to you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Right? Yeah. That's worth a clap. Would you please open to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Put your finger there about at verse 20. We're going to cover that verse this morning. Let me just give you a real quick statement here of review to remind you. This is important because this, this verse, there's two verses at the end of chapter 5, 20 and 21, and these two verses really serve as a summary of the verses, the critical passage of Scripture right before it. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 19. These two verses are going to summarize what Paul has said in those previous eight verses. And secondly, what they're going to do, just an incredible picture here of the forethought and inspiration that Paul had by the Spirit of God. In these two verses, there is in capsule form, in outline form, the framework of all that Paul is going to say in chapter 6 and 7. So this both summarizes what Paul has just been writing about, and it tells us what's coming, what he's going to give a commentary on in the next two chapters. So what has Paul been talking about in chapter 5, verses 12 to 19? He has been telling us several different ways, several different times, that Adam is our federal head, that Adam, as the first man of the human race, that his sin in the garden, that one trespass, when he took from the tree what God had told him not to take, that in that act, all of us sinned that we were charged with sin just like Adam was and condemned as guilty because of that sin. And he told us that not just to bring us under a sentence of condemnation, that was already there because of our sin. He told us that so that he could then set in place his main point and his main point in chapter 5, 12 to 19 was that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. That Jesus Christ came 
to restore what was lost when Adam was the vehicle for sin to enter into the world, for sin to come on the human race and condemn the human race. And what he showed us in those eight verses was that Jesus not only restored what was lost in the fall, but he did something exceedingly abundantly greater than just bringing us back to a pre-fall condition. That he didn't just restore to those who would believe in him a human righteousness, which is what Adam had before the fall, but he gave us something infinitely greater. He gave us the very righteousness of God himself. And not only did he restore us to the place of reigning over his world, but in fact he did something exceedingly abundantly greater. That when we are joined to Christ, we become an heir of Christ, a joint heir. That means that we reign with him from the moment of our salvation throughout the rest of eternity, not just in the physical realm here on earth, but in the spiritual realm as well, that we are going to reign with Christ over all for all eternity. That Jesus Christ, in fact, not only reversed the effects of the fall, but he did something exceedingly abundantly greater. That's what Paul has been talking to us about in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 19. But what he did in verse 13 is that he mentioned the law. He mentioned the law. Now, let me just give you a couple of points of cultural context here. The first century Jew there at Rome. First of all, the church there at Rome that Paul wrote this to was comprised primarily of Jewish Christians, Jews who had converted to Christianity. Secondly, understand or remember that to the Jew, the law was preeminent. It was the thing that their entire society was based upon, structured around. The law meaning the moral law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai and the ceremonial law that he gave to him there. Basically, the entire law structure that came from God through Moses to the people. That was preeminent, paramount in their mind. Now, the reason why that cultural context is important is this. Now, picture yourself, if you can, as a first century Jew in the Roman church reading the letter of Paul or hearing the letter of Paul read. Here is what Paul has said about the law prior to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He has told us, first of all, in an extensive development from chapter 1, verse 18, down to chapter 3, verse 20, he has told us this, the law cannot save anyone. That the law has no power to save. That no one can get to God by observing the law. 
because no one keeps the law. So the law can't save. He has told the Jewish Christian that. And for a Jew to become a Christian, he would have to embrace that. No longer trust in the law, which they had been taught in their heritage to trust in for salvation. No longer to trust in the obedience of the law to save them. So they would have already embraced that. But then in chapter 5, verse 13, Paul said something else about the law. He said this, the law does not even condemn us. Because in chapter 5, 12 to 19, what did Paul say several times over and over again condemned us? Here it is, Adam. He told us that we are condemned as guilty sinners because of the one trespass, the one sin of Adam in the garden. He built that case over and over again, and we looked at that for several weeks. So, put those together now, and we're going to really set the stage for why Paul is talking about the law here in verse five, chapter 5, verse 20. That Paul has told them, again, the law cannot save, and Paul has told them the law does not condemn. So what would be on the Jewish mind listening to that? Here's what I think would be on the Jewish mind. Remember, the Jewish mind that their entire life had been structured around the preeminence of the law. I think they would be wondering, asking this question. Then Paul if the law cannot save us and the law does not condemn us, why in the world did God give us the law? I mean, isn't it all just meaningless if it can't save and it doesn't even condemn? I mean, think back. This would be clear in the Jew's mind. Think back to the story of when the law was given. It was given at Mount Sinai. Moses led the people out of Egypt. He led them to the mountain, and God said to Moses, put boundaries around the mountain. Tell the people they cannot come to my holy mountain because if they come to it, if they cross the boundary, my holiness and wrath is going to break out against them and destroy them. And Moses went up on the mountain, and the mountain top was engulfed in billowing, raging fire and smoke, and there was an earthquake, and there was a loud trumpet blast, and God was inscribing on the tablets of stone his law to give to Moses to give to the people. No wonder why, in their mind, the law was preeminent. You see, to the Jew, it was the moment. That giving of the law was the moment when God identified himself with them, when God showed in incredible power and manifestation to them and also to the world that they were his chosen special people. 
And so here Paul has said now in Romans up to this point, the law cannot save you and the law doesn't even condemn you. And so here's the Jew in that paradigm their whole life wondering what in the world then was the purpose of God giving us the law. So in Romans chapter 5 verse 20, Paul comes back to the law and he identifies in a short statement why God gave the law. So it's my plan this morning is to just unpack the first half of chapter 5, verse 20 and talk to you about why God gave the law. And I believe by the end of this morning, if through the enablement of the Spirit of God in my life and your attentive listening, that you'll see that the purpose it served to the first century Jew at Rome, it serves the same purpose to the 21st century Christian or the 21st century non-believer in Anchorage, Alaska, right here today. So let's dive into that. Why did God give us His law? We need to look very closely at what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20. Let me read it for you. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I just want to look at the phrase, now the law came in to increase the trespass. A master key to unlocking the truth of that phrase is in two English words within that phrase. It's one word in the Greek, it's two translated in English here, and it's the words came in, the law came in. That is the same word that Paul used back in chapter 5, verse 12, when he said, through one man, through Adam, sin came into the world. Same word. And it just means that. It means that through Adam, chapter 5, verse 12, through Adam, through what Adam did, sin entered into the human race. But down in verse 20, there's an addition to the Greek word. There's a prefix put on it. Para, P-A-R-A, at the beginning of the word. And that addition, that prefix, changes the meaning of the word. It changes it from meaning came in to this, that it came alongside of, that the law, chapter 5, verse 20, came alongside of something that already was there. It didn't come in to create something. It entered into an existing situation, came alongside of something. And what specifically did it come alongside of? It came alongside of the sin that had entered through Adam. So the implication of understanding those two words and them being a master key to really help us unlock the truth of this passage is this, that the law does not create sin. Sin was here before the law came. 
The law just came in beside the sin that already existed. That's half of the equation. Here's the second critical thing to see there. And that is that the law was an addition. It was an addendum. It is not the fundamental principle or the undergirding reality. It is something that came in alongside at a later date. It is not something that is foundation, foundational to our salvation. It is something God added for a specific purpose for a specific period of time. Both of those ideas are included in the fact of that word, the use of that word, that the law came in alongside of sin. Critical to understand that. Now let's look at the statement that it came in alongside of sin to increase the trespass. Now, on a first perusal of that, we could say, now, wait a minute. That's that's something sounds a little off there. I mean, is that saying that God gave the law so that there would be more sin? We certainly know that God does not incite anyone to sin. He says that directly in James. God does not tempt anyone. So what does the phrase mean that the law came in alongside of to increase the trespass. I want to show you some ways the law did that. I'm going to give it to you under three headings. Here's the first heading. Ways that the law increases sin. Number one, through the law, revelation of sin is increased. Through the law, revelation of sin is increased. You see, the law of God is like the light of God. The law of God casts its light and reveals what is in darkness. Before the law was given, given to Moses on Mount Sinai, Long before that, sin was in the world. Sin was in the world back in the garden. By chapter 6 of Genesis, we read that God looked down on the earth and he saw that the inclination of every human heart was only wicked all the time. Pretty significant commentary about the pervasiveness and the prolific nature of sin in the human condition. Law, the sin was in the world long before the law was given. Long before the mountain shook with God's holiness and the mountain was on fire, long before that happened, mankind was engulfed in sin. But the law came alongside of sin so that it could bring sin to light. So the first way, the first category in how the law reveals sin or is the revelation of the increase of sin is this. It says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, 
Paul said, without the law, I would not have known what sin was. You see, what the law did for me, Paul said, is that it showed me what God required, what the moral calling of God was. Basically, the law was the drawing of the line in the sand to show me what was on the right side and what was on the wrong side. So in its revelation of sin, the law shows us what sin is. If we look closely at that phrase, it says that the law came in to increase the what? What does it say? Let's say that together. The law came in to increase the trespass. That's a different word from the common word used for sin. Here's the distinctive. Sin simply means to miss the mark in its general usage. It means God requires perfect righteousness. All of us miss the mark and fall short of God's glory. That was true from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Long before there was a law, sin was rampant in the world and we were all missing the mark. But the difference between sin and trespass is this. The law draws the line in the sand. The law defines sin. It pinpoints sin. It shows us specifically, here is what sin is. So that when the line is drawn and we step over the line, it becomes a trespass. It becomes the willful disobedience of a known law of God. So when Paul said that the law came in to increase the trespass, that makes perfect sense in that it revealed what sin was so that as people knew where the boundaries were and they stepped over the boundaries, people began to trespass because they were breaking what they knew to be against the law of God. So in that way, the law revealed, shows us what sin is and thereby increases the trespass or increases the sin. Secondly, under this idea that through the law, the revelation of sin is increased, under that same idea is this. The law doesn't only show us what sin is, the law shows us what sin has done to us. The law shows us what sin has done to us. I'm going to show you three subpoints under this. So important that you understand these. First of all, in showing us what sin has done to us, the law reveals how condemned we are in sin. The law reveals how condemned that we are in sin. It shows us, spelled out, in the word of God, in the law of God, that when we sin or that sin brings death, it brings physical death, it brings spiritual death and separation from God, it condemns us under his wrath to suffer his wrath for all of eternity. 
if we die in our sin. That's what the law does. The law shows us that as sinners, we are under the just judgment and condemnation of a holy, righteous God. Now, let me not be fun to hear, but it is the grace of God that the law does that. It's the lavish grace of God that the law does that because if you're kept in ignorance, you're hopeless. But if you heed and listen, the law can bring you to what will save and we'll get to that at the end. You see, under this idea that it reveals that the law reveals how condemned in sin we are, the law, in a sense, for us, if we are schooled by it, it takes the veil over hell and it pulls it back and it helps us to see what the destiny is if we die in our sin, the eternal condemnation that faces us under the wrath of God. Secondly, the law of God reveals what sin has done to us by showing us how enslaved we are to sin. Not just how condemned we are in sin, but how enslaved we are to sin. Galatians 3.21 says this, that the law does not do anything to give you the power to obey it. Does that make sense? The law clearly draws the line. The law clearly shows us what is right and what is wrong, but it doesn't help us to stay within the defined parameters of the law. It reveals to us every time we step over the line that we are really in bondage. That we do not have any power at our disposal in our human nature to say no to sin. I don't mean that you never as a non-Christian can say no to sin. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the general tenure of your life. You have no power to live above sin. And every time that a person steps over and breaks, transgresses a known law of God, it is the proof to them that they are enslaved, that they are in bondage, that they are hopeless and powerless under sin's grip. So the law in that way increases the trespass because it shows us that we are enslaved to sin's power, that we are captive to sin's grip, and that we are shackled by sin's bondage. And in that way, in our view, it increases the trespass. Thirdly, the law reveals how deceived we are by sin. The law reveals how deceived we are by sin. Listen to Romans chapter 7, verse 11. See if this strikes home to anyone here. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, 
and through it killed me. Let me explain that by asking you a question. What is the natural human tendency when somebody says to you, you can't do this, here's the line, what do you want to do? Uh, ah, a line, uh, a line. How about you, parents? I mean, from how little does that picture reveal itself day in and day out multiple times every day that as soon as you draw the line and you say, this is what you cannot do, the little precious heart of that fallen creature wants to step over the line. It's just who we are. So what Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 7, verse 11, is that as soon as the commandment came, sin seized the opportunity and said, okay, we got some stuff to work with now. We got some lines to cross, man. We're going to have some fun. That's what sin does. It's not that the law makes us sin, it's that sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the law to produce more sin in us. So that in that way, the law came in to increase the trespass by showing us how deceived we are, that we are just moving toward rebellion continually in our human nature. Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said it like this. It's going to be a shocking statement. Charles Spurgeon probably considered maybe the greatest preacher of history, 17th century. He said, claimed, that the human heart is more deceitful than the devil. It's kind of letting that kind of sift down through your brain there. That the human heart is more deceitful than the devil himself. Here's how he backed that up with Scripture. That Scripture says that the heart is deceitful, quote, above all things. And the devil is one of the all things. Therefore, it is more deceitful than the devil himself. Now, I don't know where you line up with that. I'm really not that important, but the point is the human heart is wicked. And the law was given so that through the law, the revelation of sin could increase so that you could see what sin was, number one, and secondly, what sin has done to you. How utterly corrupted down to the core you are. How you have drunk from the poison well and the disease has spread through your entire being 
That's the revealing nature of the law in relationship to the increase of sin. Let me give you the second main heading. Through the law, conviction of sin is increased. You see, all that came under that revelation point showing us what sin is and then how sin has affected us, all of that was a setup to bring us to point number two. And point number two is that the reason the law does that is to convict us. It is to bring us to the realization, wow, that is really me. That's my story. That's my life. That's my heart the law is talking about. Not somebody else's heart over there in open rebellion and in prison. That's my heart, my life, and my story. You see, Folks, we must first think rightly about sin before we can feel rightly about sin. And what the law does in its revealing stage is it helps us to think rightly about the sin so that it can bring us to the feeling stage and help us feel rightly about it, help us to be convicted by it. And the key to that conviction This is, this is another master key here. The key to you being convicted by the law of God is this, that you have to see that the law is something far more than just a set of moral codes. The purpose of the law is to show you, is to show me that it is an affront to the very person of God himself. That first and foremost, that is the essence of sin. That it is open rebellion against the goodness of God. That it comes to your creator who has given you all the good things for your benefit. And it is you shaking your face in the in his, shaking your fist in his face, rebelling against his sovereignty, fighting against his majesty. That's what sin is. That's what the law wants you and I to understand. It's not just this arbitrary set of rules that might be a little unfortunate if we break it. It is us coming right up to God and defying God himself. And until we grasp that, we are not going to come under the conviction of sin as we ought. One key proof to that can be extracted from the great commandment. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Did he say, don't covet, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder? Was that his response? No. What did he say? He said, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus said, the greatest commandment is 
your attitude related to your attitude toward God, not your activity toward people. The greatest commandment is first and foremost about your attitude toward your sovereign, holy creator. So if that is true, let's take the next logical step. If the greatest commandment is related toward our attitude toward our creator, wouldn't it also be true that the greatest sin is related to our attitude toward our creator? Certainly it is. The great sin is to treat God as if he were not God. The great sin is to live as if God is not your God. That is directly getting in the face of God himself. So the purpose of the law in increasing the trespass here It is to, first of all, reveal to you the nature of sin and how your nature has been marred by sin. And secondly, once that revelation is completed, it is to bring upon you the conviction that you are under the just judgment of a holy God whom you have stood up and shaken your fist against and rebelled against. So that you can see God rightly and yourself rightly. So, through the law, the revelation of sin is increased, number one. Number two, through the law, the conviction of sin is increased. And number three, the next natural progression is that through the law, the humiliation under sin is increased. Folks, in order for God to save you, He has to humble you. The only way you can be saved is that you've got to come to the place of brokenness and humility. You have to come to the place where you see how truly marred your nature is. And you have to see clearly how you have risen up in your sin against God so that that conviction overwhelms you and that conviction brings you to the place of abject humility to where you come before God and you say, Oh God! I am undone before you. Nothing in myself of good do I bring. I come broken as a beggar, as a rebel, and here I am, and I have one cry and one cry only. Have mercy on me, O God. That has to be the progression from revelation to conviction to humiliation and brokenness before God. Until that happens to you, you cannot be saved. Because until you come to that, do you know what you want to do? You want to bring along some of your good works with you. It's the human default to try to do something to make it yourself 
We just want to do that. And so there has to be some real hard, deep work by the law to strip us down and to remove any self-reliance, any sense of merit, any sense of good work, even one iota of that has to be thrown away, discarded, seen as a pile of dung, Paul says so that we come absolutely broken and undone in our sin and we humble ourselves under deep conviction before God and we cry out for His mercy knowing that the only way we can be saved is if Jesus saves us. Which leads us in perfect sequence to the ultimate purpose of the law. You see, the work of the law to reveal sin and the work of the law to convict us of sin and the work of the law to humble us under sin, all of those were precursives. They're not the main purpose of the law. The main purpose of the law is this. It's always been the main purpose of the law. It is to lead us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason God gave the law was to show you, to show me that we can never do anything to approach His holy mountain. That the boundaries are set up around that mountain like they were on Mount Sinai and we cannot approach Him and His mountain and His holiness any more than the Israelites could have fought their way through that barrier and climbed that holy mountain without God breaking out and consuming them. You see, that's what the law has always been meant to do. It's never been meant to bring us to God. It has been meant to show us our need and to take us by the hand and to carry us over in our revelation, conviction, and humility to the person of Jesus Christ and say, you can't do it, you're hopeless, but here's the one who can do it, who has done it, and is waiting to do it for you. The law was given to bring us to the Savior so that our sin could be wiped clean. That's why, you see, please see this connection. I told you at the beginning of this message that the law came in alongside of came in alongside of sin. It came in 430 years after God had made a covenant with Abraham. After God had already made, entered into a relationship with the people, the Hebrew people. So the law, 430 years later, wasn't the beginning of that relationship. It came way after that covenant was established. Therefore, it doesn't nullify the covenant. It doesn't change the rules. It's secondary. It's a, just an addendum for a little period of time. And it came in from the time of Moses. Listen, it came in, the law did, from the time of Moses up to the time of Christ so that it could 
increase the trespass so that it could say to you and say to me, you need a Savior. You need a Savior. You're hopeless. You cannot make it to God. He's holy, and you are not. You're a rebel. You have to be saved by the one God will send. That's why when Jesus showed up on the Jordan River and John the Baptist looked over at Jesus, he pointed his finger and he shouted out, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That Lamb of God was the one who came to fulfill the law. He lived in perfect obedience to the law so that as a perfect sacrifice, he could go and in completing the law, die for your sin and mine so that the law was really meant for the time of Moses to the time of Christ to lead those people to show them their need. They thought it was the way to get to God. It was to show them they could never get to God. That only God's Christ could bring them to Him. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So a couple of points of application here. We'll close. Where are you at this morning? Are you like the Israelites there, like the Hebrew people standing outside of the boundary around the holy mountain, unable to approach the holy God? Do you remember what was taking place while God was carving the ten tablets of stone with Moses on the mountain? Do you remember what was happening when he was doing that? The people were down building, fashioning an idol in a drunken orgy breaking the laws that were being carved in stone. You see, those laws were never meant to save. They were meant to show you that you are a hopeless sinner. And if you don't get it right with God, you're headed to hell. You're going to fall into the hands of the God who is a consuming fire. You are going to come under his swift and eternal judgment. There is going to be no hope for you. But if you will let the law do what it was intended to do, if you'll open up your heart and your eyes to its revelation of sin and allow that to settle into a conviction in your heart about what you are doing against the very God of goodness who has done everything for you, 
so that you are broken and undone before him in humility, bringing nothing but your sin and a cry for mercy. If it will do those things in you, it will lead you to Christ and give you the faith to believe so that when you cry out, Christ will do for you what the law could never do. He'll cleanse you of your sin. He will give you his perfect righteousness so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your frailties and your faults and your rebellion. He sees perfect obedience, the obedience of his son. So, first point of application is, if you're outside of the grace of God, under the sentence of the law of God, you don't have to leave here like that. You can leave here welcomed right up to the holy mountain in an eternal relationship with the God who loves you wants to lavish his grace on you. Second point of application, worship team, would you come as I share this? Second point of application is this. The law of God today is still the thing that leads us to Christ. There is a, I'm not pointing fingers at any individual church at all. I don't have any church in mind. I'm just talking about the general tenure of the American church. What I've seen, what I've read, there is a downgrading of sin in the church. There is a hesitancy to call sin for what it is. There is a reluctance to preach about, to talk about the wrath of God, the law of God that brings us under revelation and conviction and humiliation. But if we don't preach the law of God, what happens? Think about the consequence. If the law of God brings revelation and conviction and humiliation, a humbling under sin so that we can accept Christ. If we don't preach the law of God, we aren't going to see people come to Christ in true repentance. We're not going to see true brokenness and a laying aside of everything that we attempt to do on our own. And you have to lay it all aside to come to Christ. We need to preach the law of God because it's the law of God that really makes the grace of God so beautiful. That's what Paul says in the second half of this verse, that where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. We're going to spend a few weeks, maybe several, covering the last half of verse 20 and verse 21 and talking about the grace of God. But listen, you've got to understand the law of God if you're going to understand the grace of God. So we better 
use the law as it was intended to be used so that we're not presenting people a gospel that's not really a gospel. So that we're bringing people in their abject brokenness and humility under great conviction to the Savior who wants to pick them up. You see, if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. Only if you humble yourself will God lift you up. Please stand. Altars are going to be open. We're going to sing a song of closing here. I don't know what God is speaking to your heart today. Maybe you're here and you want to accept Christ. Maybe you have somebody that you want to pray for that they would understand what we've been talking about here today. Some loved ones that are lost. Maybe you just have a need you want to bring to the Lord. We're just going to start making an opportunity for this end of service, have the altars out. I encourage you to come if you need to do that. I think that there is a dynamic here when we are together and the Spirit of God is here that, that He releases His power in ways that He doesn't otherwise. I encourage you to come. I'll pray and then we'll sing. You come as we do that if you want to pray. Father, again, Lord, just again like in the first service, like last evening and just in really working through this, oh, how your law just looked down into my own heart. showed me how personal my sin is against you. It's not just this theoretical wrongdoing. It's, it's an affront to you. I know that in Christ you've already forgiven me for that, but I'm broken over it, Lord. Sorry, Sorry for my rebellion. I want to pray, Lord, for myself. I want to pray for these people here. First, Lord, I, I ask that if, for those that are here that are held back from the holiness of God because of their condemnation under sin, that you give them the faith to believe. The conviction, the humiliation, and then the faith to come to Jesus and accept what Jesus offers, freely offers, is longing to give them. And that you'd save their soul. You'd take them in behind the torn veil. You'd bring them up your holy mountain. Secondly, Lord, for us who are believers, who are saved, oh, help us not to be or to give occasion 
through sinful activity for your name to be maligned. In the eyes of people, but not only in the eyes of people, in the eyes of the spiritual realm. I just believe when the, when the Christian sins, it gives opportunity for Satan and his forces to mock God. Help us, Lord, to live hard toward you, please. And then, Lord, as we leave here this week, we leave here in just a few minutes, that we would go out of this place into the mission field. That as we exit the doors, we've met here, we've gathered here, we've been encouraged here, instructed here, but now as we leave, we are really kind of breaking in the huddle and we're going out to the work, we're going out to the mission field and you have called every follower of yours to be about the process of making disciples. Not just your paid ministers that all of us as believers are ministers of the gospel and you have called all of us to as we are going to be about the making of disciples. Give us opportunities to talk to people about your love and about your grace, about your son, to encourage people to do it in love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.